0: Welcome to today's episode of the Design Leadership Podcast, where we will be speaking with Sean Carney, currently Chief Experience Design Officer, Executive Vice President, as well as General Manager of Healthcare Transformation Services at Philips. Sean will speak to us and share some insights, inspiration, and challenges he's faced in his 35-plus-year career journey working for some world-leading companies driving brand experiences around the globe. Sean will also give us a glimpse into how he is helping to support Philip's very benevolent and ambitious mission to improve the lives of over 2.5 billion people around the globe. Welcome to today's Design Leadership Podcast, where we're speaking with Sean Carney. Sean, great to have you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for the invitation. Happy to be here. Great. Really looking forward to speaking with you and learning about your amazing background and your current role and all the wonderful, amazing things that you've been able to contribute to the industry uh, over the many years. Just to get going, uh, Sean, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to your current role, where you're at today?
1: Yeah, it's uh, obviously at this stage in my life, it's quite a long journey. So I'll try and sort of just pick a few highlights along the path. But uh, yeah, from the UK originally, grew up in Yorkshire did a degree, master's degree. Master's degree was kind of one of those moments which was really where I kind of woke up to the potential of design. I really kind of got a bit between my teeth and realized what a great opportunity I had in front of me and um, worked my butt off to get that uh, master's degree. I effectively signed up with a local agency. I was working in, in Birmingham. And throughout uh, the two years I spent doing my master's, I was also part-time working through the weekends and through the evenings, designing and delivering consulting projects through this agency, which meant by the time I graduated, I had this huge portfolio of products that had actually come to market. And that really gave me uh, an appetite for seeing designs realized, packaged products on a shelf, somebody able to buy them. And uh, for a student, that felt really special and, you know, happy that I, I was rewarded for that by, uh, by the university at the time. Got a nice uh, distinction, so graduated uh, pretty highly there. And it meant I also walked out straight into a job with that agency. So I never stopped. I kind of just took off one day from, from college and landed next day already delivering projects with clients I've been working with for two years And they were interesting clients. It was companies like Anglepoise Lighting, one of the classic old UK lighting companies, helping to modernize and make more contemporary lights for them. An old company called Swan Houseware, so domestic appliances. And then there was a client called Thorny MI. And Thorny MI, a little like Philips actually now in hindsight, was an industrial diversified conglomerate. They did everything from entertainment to washing machines domestic appliances, all sorts of different products. And what I realized in that point was I didn't like being only a consultant to these companies. I really felt that once I'd handed over my beautiful concept, that the concept inevitably got lost in the implementation through to production. And I realized that this was like a year into my career at this agency. I didn't know enough about what it took to commercialize a product and to take it into full-scale production. So I left and joined Thorny MI um, as an industrial designer in order to better understand production processes and the commercialization of products, and to see a product through from concept right through to delivery on the shelf. And uh, that was one of those defining moments, if you like, because I was pulled in, to production lines, to production meetings. I'd go evaluate tools as they came, as they were being formed, and really get to grips with the production process. So, really cut my teeth in an oily factory in the backwaters of Birmingham, understanding how stuff got made, which was fantastic. And then, fortuitously, Thorny I got bought by a Swedish conglomerate called Electrolux. And the design director of uh, Electrolux came to visit us and Christian Klingspor, his name was, and uh, he invited me to then come to the main Electrolux site just outside London to help form a UK studio for Electrolux. And that was exciting to be there at the beginning of that. And we got to work on a much broader portfolio of products for domestic appliances and uh, vacuum cleaners and things like this. And uh, it was a great time, you know, working across all of these products. Spent some time down there. Then we uh, set up a new studio up in the north of England and uh, had some great uh, talents join me there. And I know you've spoken with people like Phil Thompson, maybe Paul Flowers, um, some senior design leaders around the world who've gone on to great things. Well, we all cut our teeth in County Durham working on these Electrolux products. And then we've gone off in uh, different parts of the world. So it was a good, good time couple of years or three, four years there in Durham. And then I was invited to move to Italy to set up a European design center uh, for Electrolux. And that, again, was one of those aha moments, really outside my comfort zone. I'd never really thought about working abroad, but uh, landed in Italy, an Englishman in a design studio in Italy. None of the designers really spoke English. There was only two. There were two other foreigners in that studio, coming from Brazil, and we were very much the outsiders, you know. And here, here I was hired uh, to help set up this new studio in the temple of good design in Italy, and uh, as an Englishman, so it was a rocky few first months. But once we'd kind of broken through and showed that, you know, I was really going to be respectful and understanding and actually wanted to learn from them about the quality of their design, then we broke through a lot of barriers. And what we did over the course of the next four years was really internationalize that setup and grow it from a small core team of about 15 people to at its peak, it was about 80 people uh, coming from, I think, 25 different nationalities. And that was also one of those moments when I realized that the creativity within a design team can be really stimulated and put on steroids by bringing in people from diverse cultures with diverse perspectives and the diversity of the nationalities and the cultural backgrounds really helped us achieve some amazing results in that design studio. It was a really amazing time to be part of that, uh, that journey as well. So Nice time in Italy, beautiful part of the world to live, learned a lot. And then with that, uh, I was pretty successful, apparently, because I was then invited to move to head office in Sweden uh, to Stockholm for Electrolux. And uh, there I took on a global role where I was responsible for brand experience. And that was, again, was, was a different animal for me. So I was moving from working in factories, developing products, to now thinking more about how do we articulate the brand through product experiences? So how, does the, how do the brand attributes now manifest themselves as physical, tangible products? And as we started to think about that, we said, well, we've got to think more holistically. We've got to think about brand experience across shopping, about post-sales, pre-sales, about out-of-box experience. And we started to touch and build all these propositions around brand experience And uh, that was, again, an amazing time to go deeper and uh, really, you know, understand how to work with the different regions. So the Brazilian team, the Chinese team, the North American team, understand local needs, local cultures, local variations on a theme and drive consistency for the brand at the same time. So a lot of learnings from, from that role. And by this point, I'd been 17 years or so in, uh, in Electrolux at this point. And I'd been working with a local startup agency in Stockholm, and it was run by a couple of Finnish guys, Yari Oliko and uh, uh, Andreas Rosenlev. That was the one, Andreas. And together, we, we had this agency called Grow. And we really then started to look at how can we bring this notion of brand experience to life with various other clients and this was like, again, a, a moment for me where having come out of large enterprise into now an agency background, I got to work on all these cool brands. So we were doing work with Saab at the time, with Lexus Automotive, Bang & Olufsen. And then my particular account was uh, Itala, which is a, a kind of everyday luxury, as we, as we termed it, everyday luxury tableware and homewares uh, company. And I spent a lot of time in Finland kind of defining who the brand is and how it would manifest that in their portfolio, which was, again, a fantastic, uh, fantastic opportunity. We had a lot of other clients, but then I got pulled into another Swedish-Finnish company called Asa Abloy, and they just acquired a global brand called Yale, and it was a security brand and security company. And I was asked to help redefine the Yale brand and try and create some value from it. And with that, I moved from Sweden to Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, and um, we started to build out this notion of uh, security and security points uh, stores. And I was building these stores in South Africa. These were uh, franchise stores in the Philippines, in Russia, all over the world. I had development teams. Now I was appointed to be vice president of their engineering and uh, product development, so moved beyond design. And um, with that, I had teams literally in every part of the world. So for the next three years, I spent my life on an airplane, literally circumnavigating the world. And cool as that was and interesting as it was, it got old. I got really tired and it wasn't good for family life. I'd spend three weeks in the air every month, And really came to the agreement with my wife that we needed a lifestyle change. And fortunately, at that point, HP approached me and asked me to join Hewlett-Packard in San Diego. And anybody who's visited San Diego knows that's not a tough sell. It's a beautiful part of the world. And it was to really come in and help establish uh, an experience design capability in HP. And... The good thing was we'd had a lot of great work going on already. Sam Lucenti at the time uh, up in Palo Alto had already set the foundations in place. And so my job was a lot easier than that the barriers had been broken, and now we had to establish capability. So um, that was fantastic. I got to work with IDO, with Frog, with Design Works, Astro Studios, uh, Smart Design all the the cool names in the world of design in North America, I was working with them. And through that, really then in a very short space of time, able to really drive some amazing products. And what HP did for me was open my eyes to a whole other world of digital propositions, of connected experiences, of smart devices, and you know, working on the early days of the Internet of Things with uh, connected devices. So it was a really breakthrough moment uh, when, I, when I did that. And then as I was sitting enjoying the sun on um, uh, Carlsbad Beach one day, and I uh, got a phone call from a headhunter, would I be interested to join Philips? And um, I've got to say, I, I said no a couple of times, and then they eventually got me on a video conference with Stefano, and uh, Stefano convinced me to come and pay a visit. Uh, To Amsterdam and meet with the team. And um, again, I, I wasn't convinced even after meeting them. And it was only when I finally met the new CEO, Franz van Houten, who was just about to take on Tennessee for the company. And he talked about his vision, his mission, what he thought the purpose could be for Philips. That convinced me to leave sunny California and move to Beautiful, but somewhat gray, somewhat rainy Amsterdam. So uh, so that's where I am, yeah.
0: Amazing journey, Sean, to say the least, uh, around the world. Some amazing companies, some amazing opportunities to uh, really drive design across all the touch points, as you mentioned. You started talking uh, originally about university and working your butt off, which I applaud. I think there's no substitute for hard work, uh, but also there is a bit of luck and in, in serendipity Throughout our careers and our journeys, thinking back to all those, uh, those um, engagements and milestones, is there anything that stands out as a, as a key memory or catalyst that really helped to define or direct or, or catapult your career? Is there anything that really stands out looking back?
1: I think getting out of your comfort zone. That, that move to Italy was a big move. You know, my family had, was very much a Yorkshire family, not really, you know, worked outside of Yorkshire didn't travel a lot. But the opportunity to go live and work, take the family down there, uh, it was tough. You know, I had school-age kids. There was no international school. So my older kids, uh, eldest kids are completely fluent in Italian, which uh, they're happy about now. But at the time, it was difficult. And then landing as a foreigner in that very alien environment, to be honest, at the start was really outside my comfort zone. But what it taught me, and and together with the two Brazilian guys who were there alongside me, I had a lot of empathy for them and for how they were experiencing it, because I was living this myself. But, you know, also then understanding how the Italian team were perceiving us and then working my way through that to try and figure out how we could get the best creative output out of this team and then actually doubling down and reinforcing the diversity of the team. And so whenever we were recruiting, we really were looking at it, you know, which, which culture do we not have represented? You know, we're designing for a European market. Do we have Spanish, French, German, Swedish, UK, wherever. Can we tick the boxes on these? Because I really want people who have an insight into local needs here. And by forcing that a little bit, getting that diversity into the team, it really helped take the creativity up to a different level. And um, we would have regular parties with, um, you know, bring food from your local uh, country, uh, do a show and tell on what's going on back in your country from a design perspective. And, you know, it was funny. There was moments where the Italians, uh, the Italian designers were looking at the Brazilians and saying, is design a thing in Brazil? You know, you guys, it's all, you know, isn't it rainforests or the beach? You know, what do you know about design? And these guys were from Curitiba. If you know Curitiba, it's a, a, a fantastic, contemporary, modern, big, sprawling city. And there we were in rural Italy. And um, so when they showed pictures of their home in Curitiba with monorails and skyscrapers, uh, they were like, wow, okay, we had no idea. So it was these kind of moments that, that led to that bonding. And what that's taught me is be respectful of other cultures, diversity and inclusion. isn't just about gender, it's also about bringing people from different ethnic backgrounds, from different points of view. And as I grew in my role, I also grew to appreciate that you may not always agree with an engineer or a marketeer, or you may have people coming from supply chain or from the CFO office who have a different perspective. But if you embrace them, if you work together with them, then actually your solution has a pretty good chance of coming out even better than if you just had a room full of like-minded people.
0: Yeah, I uh, of course would agree hundred percent. As we know, DVI diversity inclusion is is very prevalent these days. As companies maybe laggards are catching up, and I think as designers, I I mentioned quite a bit. You know, naturally uh, we're empathetic, so to really want to understand the different cultures, inputs, perspectives, and needless to say, as a, as a fantastic design leader ahead of the curve and exercising that many years ago. And I appreciate what you said earlier about, you know, getting out of your comfort zone. So that's uh, maybe a catalyst and a defining moment, but also of course uh, a a challenge, right? To, to take that step into unfamiliar, maybe uncomfortable territory. But uh, uh, I personally believe there are no mistakes. So you take that kind of leap of faith and in retrospect, usually it's The best thing that happened, not always, but uh, I applaud you for for taking those leaps of faith throughout your career. Um, Sean, we want to spend a little bit of time, of course, to talk about your current role, um, the many facets of that. And I think most of our listeners are maybe familiar with Philips, the company, maybe some of the brands, but maybe not so aware of the recent changes and repositioning. So if you could talk a little bit about your current role and maybe also a quick introduction into Philips as it is today.
1: Yeah, obviously, Philips is, I think, known around the world. We're 130 years old as a company. Proud to say design has been a part of that journey for coming up shortly to 100 years. So one of the older design institutions within any company. But of course, over the years, we grew from being a light bulb company into a technical term, a diversified industrial conglomerate, meaning that we had a finger in lots of different pies. So we made TVs, we made lighting, we made domestic appliances, we made consumer electronics, and we made medical equipment. So many different businesses and very little synergy between those disparate parts of of the enterprise here. So over the course of the last 10 years, and this has accelerated over the last five years, we've divested many of these businesses, starting with TV, then lighting, then consumer electronics, and most recently, just a few months ago, domestic appliances. And we've done that in order to focus in on this notion of um, health and wellness. So we've become really now a health technology company. And we we look at health and we use the word um, health technology, not med technology, because we really want to think about this continuum of care from helping people live a healthy life in the comfort of their home, but then understanding people do get sick. So making sure that we've got ways in which we can detect any potential illness or chronic disease at an early stage. Um, So uh, precision diagnostics, personal diagnostics and things like that into then therapy and therapy done in a minimally invasive way. Uh, And then also to be able to get them back into the home as soon as possible. So we think about this continuum of care end to end. And that's really forced a cultural change and a way in which we operate the business has changed. So from a a diversified conglomerate now into an operating company mindset. And in an operating company mindset, it means that we, of course, now want to get more leverage around consistent experiences, common components And leverage knowledge across the entire organization, across the company. And as we've done this to the enterprise, we've also had to, of course, adapt and change the way Philips design operated. So the Philips design of the past was very well known for doing design probes, for um, being consultants. And we were not only consultants to the outside world, we were also often consultants to the business units across the Philips portfolio. Now, as we've morphed into this um, now operating company mindset, we've restructured design to be much more of a function, a recognized function within the enterprise. And it's a subtle difference, but it is a difference because with that functional responsibility, becomes also the it becomes important to have a functional perspective, and bring a functional mindset into uh, defining strategy, defining portfolios, and showing functional leadership in terms of owning end-to-end experiences. So it's meant a lot of changes. It's difficult to do justice to that without visuals and diagrams, but you can imagine now that. Um, We've got design teams embedded in R&D teams, in uh, uh, business units around the world. The designers are not just there to do delivery, as it were, to respond to briefs. The expectation is that design is also part of a leadership team. So our design leaders sit in an integrated leadership team across these business units and together with perhaps a clinical leader, a marketing leader, an innovation leader, they contribute to the portfolio selection and to the investment choices within those businesses. So, And that demonstrates then real functional leadership, if you like.
0: Yeah, thanks for the um, overview there. And uh, needless to say, a lot of uh, changes, uh, a lot of lifting and shifting, if you will, and uh, As you mentioned, going on 100 years, I think most of the world outside in looks at Philips as a design leader, a design-led organization. But regardless, we know internally, Sean, that there's always challenges or opportunities uh, presenting themselves. So given the current states or just in general, what you can share, would you mind to let us know any of the challenges that you're facing right now, macro or micro that are going on within Philips?
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously we're coming out of you know, 18 months coming up to two years shortly of, of pandemic, which obviously did a uh, caused a, a major reset on the very customers that we're targeting now. So healthcare providers globally. Now, along with the changes I mentioned on design, uh, along the way, the CEO Franz Van Houten also asked me to take on responsibility for our consulting business. Now, this is not design consulting. This is our consulting where we go into healthcare providers around the world, into hospitals, and we help redesign, redefine care pathways. We look at optimizing their operations, optimizing the way they care for patients, and um, improve care delivery in those hospitals. So that's a team that I then inherited of uh, former CIOs of hospitals, former chief nursing officers, people with medical backgrounds, nursing backgrounds, um, who really understand the context of the way healthcare is delivered. Now, when the crisis hit, when the pandemic hit, there was immediate rally, immediate call to action. So we have um, a a part of our offering is interim management. So immediately we were asked to redeploy managers to go in and set up surge centers in Washington, in California, in different locations around the world to manage COVID patients. We also then had um, uh, departmental managers go in and look at how to split flows between COVID positive patients and regular patients. And doing that also then led to opportunities to think about insights into how could technology help? How could we help redesign a pathway with inside a hospital? And this is where the two worlds of consulting and design really come together, So the way in which we find out what the problems of the staff are, the problems of the patients are, the problems of the operating team at the um, the hospital is, is we use a design thinking approach. And we do that by putting designers on site in the hospital and running co-create labs where we can really get the nurses, the clinicians and the patients to kind of give up their needs, their wants, their desires, their wishes. And as designers, We can help them articulate those needs. We can envision those needs. We can start to illustrate them for them and through that start to really map out uh, an enhanced journey, a more streamlined, more effective, more patient-friendly way of delivering care. So that's kind of some of the changes that have been going on. And we've seen now healthcare systems coming under so much pressure because of not only dealing with the COVID patients, but the backlog of elective surgeries that had to be delayed as a result of the pandemic, they're under enormous pressure to try and recover that. Now, at the same time, of course, they're investing heavily to try and prepare themselves for any next event, for any next wave that comes at them. So we're using design thinking approach, this co-create methodology, to think about how we set up more resilience, more resilient healthcare systems going forwards, which means now that, you know, I've got designers working with government ministers, uh, the federal government in North America, redefining or thinking about what does a resilient healthcare system of the future look like and impacting government policy. In fact, one of our designers actually double hats between being a design leader for a region And also being our government relations uh, leader for that region, and which I think in design circles, that's unheard of, that you have this kind of dual responsibility dealing with governments and dealing with design and bringing those two worlds together to use creativity to unlock the problems of a government or a region and find creative ways in which we can solve it which is, yeah, this is the bit where I get really excited about the potential of design. You know?
0: Yeah, amazing to hear and lots of opportunities through this crisis, given the fact that we're still um, hopefully coming out of COVID, but still in it. I would be remiss to ask uh, just high level, Sean, if, if there's been any implications, both positive or maybe negative for you and, and your teams and operations with, with COVID. How has that affected you in a, from, a, from a leadership and, in, 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 let's say, operational standpoint with your teams?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, access to the hospitals has become increasingly difficult because they were, you didn't want to risk spreading infection, you didn't want to put your people at risk. But nevertheless, we had a lot of brave souls who were out there helping keep the place running and keep the lights on and uh, making sure patients were seen and did, uh, did get the care they needed. From a design point of view, the most immediate challenge was sending everybody home. You know, we went from we have 14 design studios around the world and we went to six, seven hundred design studios around the world. So we very quickly had to adopt digital networking tools, digital creativity tools, sharing platforms like we use Miro. Good plug for Miro there, I'm sure. But um, um, at first it was it was tricky. It was difficult. We, we were struggling. But then very quickly, the team has adapted. And what we're now finding is, as we go back into the office, back into the studios, we don't wanna give up on the inclusiveness that Miro and these online collaboration tools actually brought. You know, we just finished a big project, a global project where we had teams in Singapore, Shanghai, Seattle, Brazil, all working together, co-creating solutions And, okay, there weren't many times in the day when everybody was on the board together, but you had one digital touch point. All the designers involved in that project could dip in and out, contribute, leave notes one another, and then co-create some amazing new work through that forum. Now, historically, we would have spent a fortune flying people into one location, which is cool. And, you know, it's always great to have people come visit and uh, always great to go traveling. But it would have been maybe difficult to to find the budget for that. If we think about sustainability and our carbon footprint also not great either. We can't, on the one hand, claim to be leading our industry in uh, green technologies and sustainability. And then at the same time, flying people around the world for every workshop. So it's something that's now embedded within our way of working. And as we come back to the studio, as we set up our studios, for more hybrid ways of working, we're definitely going to be seeing much more, you know, surface uh, hubs and um, uh, digital touch points going forwards as well.
0: Great. Thanks for sharing. And uh, I think that's the sediment across the board. There's been some, I would say, silver lining in all this. You mentioned, you know, not traveling, which is of course positive from a cost savings and a, a lesser environmental footprint and in, in, in all the movements here in, in being more uh, carbon neutral, speaking of well, the costs. Other,
1: the other point yeah. there, Jay, was, um, I think just from a pure people on the ground perspective, You know, I think we got hung up on attendance too much. We wanted people to be physically present every day, nine to five in the office. And I don't think we've, we've proven that isn't needed. Yes, there are moments when it's fantastic to come and meet and you share the facilities within a studio and uh, do co-creation sessions, joint sketching sessions, whatever it is. But it's also, we've been more, we're now more uh, aware of that people have a life. They've got kids, they've got family, they've got dogs to walk. And actually, if you respect that kind of side of things, they're going to come and do better work and be more engaged. If you give them the space, give them the time, create the flexibility for them to uh, to take care of their life outside of work as well. And uh, I think that's also driving commitment and engagement uh, going forwards.
0: That's fantastic to hear from your leadership point of view. And I think most people are welcoming the, the positive changes to more of a work-life balance, uh, whatever that means for them. You had mentioned before, again, uh, something around cost savings, which is you know, a positive effect of this uh, reduced travel. Speaking of savings and investments, maybe not so much at Philips, maybe so uh, as being a design-led company, but also looking back at your other roles in these global conglomerates. How have you helped to convince the business to invest in design? Or did you need to?
1: Uh, It's an ongoing dialogue. There's no free ride. But I think we've proven, I mean, yes, I inherited 80 years of design excellence. So, you know, I had the fortune of um, standing on the shoulders of of some great people before me from Stefano to Bob Blake and everybody before him. But of course, it's a different company, different managers. Um, Not all of them are familiar with design. And once we moved beyond consumer products, where the role of design was very clear, very understandable. Once you move into the world of healthcare, the role of design was a lot less clear to people. So that's meant we've had to really continuously educate, update, and, and demonstrate the value that we can bring. Now, you know, I wouldn't say anymore that we're a design-led company, but what I would say is that we've been instrumental in helping clarify the purpose of the company, the mission of the company. And I would say now we're more of a purpose-led company than ever before. And the purpose is around very much improving the lives of people around the world. And we've got two and a, a target. We, we report on a target to the markets. Two and a half billion lives improved is our target. And we then even subdivide that and say, out of that two and a half billion, we want 400 million people in underserved communities who currently don't have access to care. We're going to make sure that they have access to care. So that's really compelling for people. And designers, of course, are highly motivated and inspired by that journey to bring care to those who need it most. And um, when you start to get into that, then, you know, forget about the badge of design. It's just we're on a mission. We want to get this done. And we bring value into this with our creative perspective, our craftsmanship of design, you know. It's all too easy to get hung up on design thinking is going to change the world. Design thinking is what makes a difference in a large corporation. But we need both. We need design thinkers and we need design doers. And I want to make sure in this podcast that we also celebrate the craft of design, the creativity of design, because we've enabled, we've brought design thinking into our end to end business processes. We have design thinking capabilities from sales, from acquisition of customers uh, into long-term strategic partnerships. But those never work unless you have a creative designer in there as well. We can teach design thinking to marketeers, to engineers, to all sorts of people. But the whole process, it gets enriched if you have a real creative designer in that mix as well. And so I make sure that we're trying to celebrate every day good industrial design, good user experience design, good packaging designers, good graphic designers, good motion graphic designers. You know, we need all of those uh, micro skills and micro disciplines that make up a design department. And we've got to celebrate
0: that craft
1: of design as well.
0: A hundred percent agree. Of course, I think design is in its heyday right now, thanks to the design thinking movement and, and the Let's say industry pioneers, the Googles, Apples, Dysons, and and Philips of the world that have really been driving design into business, and uh, I think we often lose track of, you know, what I say, the foundation of design, which is the arts and crafts, the skillsmanship. But unfortunately, for many, it's still known only as that, as as the decoration station, and and further down the development line. So you mentioned a few things at Philips. We know there's a lot of changes going on, and I applaud this uh, very ambitious and Benevolent purpose that you have to to change the lives of 2.5 billion people—quite uh, a goal. But uh, of course, goals are set as a target to achieve, and hopefully, you achieve that and maybe surpass that. But that's a, that's quite a, a lofty a number to reach. Speaking of the future of Philips uh, and and some of the things that are going on, maybe outside of Philips and design in general, Sean, you've you've seen design change many uh, many facets over the decades. In your perspective in your opinion, where do you see design headed in the next few years or, or the next decade? Where What is next for design in general or specifically?
1: I Yeah, we, we're part of a number of forums thinking about the future of design education at the moment. And uh, it's great working with people like Don Norman. Uh, we're part of a forum with Don, kind of challenging, you know, the, the way in which universities are educating designers. And Again, we're going to need more, and Tim Brown first coined the phrase, uh, you know, T-shaped profiles, and it's become a little bit kind of old, old school now, but we absolutely do need people who have a depth in a particular discipline. And that can be at a craft level from an industrial design perspective, you know, celebrating the beautiful object and crafting beautiful products or UI or UX or packaging or graphics, whatever that is. But equally, they need to understand how that applies in the context of a diverse team, of a, a multifunctional, cross-functional team. So, you know, we pride ourselves on empathy. We often just focus empathy on an end user. But I think also we do ourselves a disservice by doing that. I think we also need to have empathy for our colleagues, our peers in the total organization, So, those engineers, those marketeers, the financial people who've got to make the numbers stack up, if we can walk in their shoes for a moment, if we can empathize with their needs, that will also enable us to deliver much more compelling, much more creative, much more groundbreaking solutions and ideas and get those ideas from concepts into reality. I mean, that's, you know, when you're on a mission, when you're part of a purpose driven company like we are. I don't, I'm not interested anymore in just doing blue sky projects. I want a challenge. I want to stretch. I want to reach for the sky. But I want to make sure my toes are also still in touch with the ground because I want to bring those visions into reality because those visions will only save lives if we can make them real. And that's really what uh, I think the designers of the future have to keep in mind. Don't just do your concepts, your fantasies make sure that you have a map to bring those into fruition.
0: Great advice there. And I think uh, kind of a red thread through many of the uh, the leadership perspectives of having your head in the cloud and feet on the ground and being able to navigate both, right? Kind of the helicopter position when you need to kind of zoom out and, and zoom in. And, and and kudos and applaud to the support with the, the whole Future of Design Ed movement that's going on. We're of course quite privy to that and trying to support that. I think most people are familiar with the T-shape. Uh, maybe a little plug for one of my colleagues here on the team. Uh, he's been talking about the pie shape, about actually growing a whole nother leg, uh, whether that's right. business or technical <laughs> next to the, the design, the, the craft, and the skill set, etc.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's. I, I think just be open. I mean, when the CEO first approached me and said, hey, will you take this business under your wing? It's like, whoa, hold on. That's a grown-up job. That's got a P&L associated with it. Um, and I had to dive in. So, yeah, I'm now totally familiar with order intake sheets and PL and cost of goods, cost of sales, Zelx. you know, a whole other language I've learned. But, uh, you know, you can throw yourself in and take a risk and, yeah, you, you learn from it.
0: Get that. Uh, Sean, you mentioned a little bit about some of the, you know, the opportunities and, and where design is going. Uh, of course, with that opportunity comes challenges. Do you see any challenges facing the industry as well with the design becoming, let's say, a little bit maybe democratized and disseminated across all things? Or what is your perspective on, on some barriers and roadblocks for us?
1: Yeah, I think there's certain disciplines, certain capabilities that we have not anticipated the demand well enough. So right now, really hard to find good service designers, anybody with anything digital to do with their capability, their their uh, their job title is uh, is in high demand. Uh, we've seen, of course, the the big agencies, the McKinsey's, the BCGs of this world, et cetera, also discover design and of course, go out and hire and build. And then uh, the big tech companies, of course, uh, whether it's AWS or Microsoft or Apple or all of them, all and Google all building huge, monolithic design capabilities. And I think good talent is extremely hard to come by right now. So I think it's really important that we spend time thinking about how do we nurture people's careers? Um, how can we help enable people to grow and uh, develop these skills and capabilities to be effective, to be a great designer? And, you know, in the past, it was you chose two career paths. You either stayed with your craft and you know accepted the limitations of how far you could go just being let's say an industrial designer or you took a management route and took on people management financial responsibilities and became a design manager design director etc but i think there are many more nuanced career tracks that now emerging designers can take around uh, experience leads for instance thinking about how you bridge across uh, disparate parts of a portfolio but they, again, I think the biggest threat right now is there just aren't enough graduates coming out with that uh, capability, with that mindset to be able to do all of this kind of work. And my printer just started. You can
0: hear it in the background. <laughs> well, I think back to the work that's going on with the future of design ed and uh, whether that's academia or or, or post-academia uh, in the professional workplace, a lot of the work we're doing to help kind of fill the gaps, if you will, um, hopefully, you know, in in the near future, that won't be such an issue. But uh, again, I think it's a good time to be in design. It's the heyday. There's a lot of opportunities, and uh, we look forward to seeing and supporting where the industry grows um, in general and then specifically within the different uh, organizations and industries around the uh, globe. I would Sean. I
1: would absolutely echo that, Jay. I think it's it's one of the most amazing times to be a designer. If you are a graduate just about to come out, don't hang around, start getting your CV out there, start leaning in and be relentless, knock on every door, talk to anybody and everybody, just dive in. There's a need for people, uh, for good people, of course, but um, yeah, just go out there and uh, start the journey, start learning and uh, get your feet wet and uh, see where it takes you.
0: That's fantastic. And that was uh, already leading into the, the, the last and final question, uh, Sean, in addition to, uh, let's say, recent graduates and, and, and really pushing out their CV, do you have any advice for our listeners or for the community at large, uh, how to you know either elevate their careers or elevate design within their organizations?
1: Yeah, I, I listened to some of your earlier podcasts, Jay, and, and I think there's a theme which comes up. Quite often, designers are Try and put the feeling across that we're misunderstood. People misinterpret us. And um, we kind of play the victim. And I've been there. I've done it. Absolutely guilty of it. But you've got to shake that off. It's, you know, move, move out of that. Think about, well, what's blocking me? What's stopping me? If they don't understand, what is it I can do to help them understand? And whether that is an accountant or a production engineer or a uh, um, uh, yeah, supply chain person. Go find out, use your empathy skills, use your design skills to go understand what uh, what's needed. And through that, nothing should stand in your way, but you know, keep that optimism, keep the inquisitiveness. That's what you were in design to begin with. You're inquisitive, you're optimistic, you see always a potential future, and you'll never reach perfection in anything you do. Absolutely, just accept it now but you should never give up trying to strive for that perfection and keep pushing. If you don't achieve it on this product release, go for the next one. Keep showing, keep provoking, keep pushing and uh, just be relentless.
0: Fantastic words of advice, Sean. I think perfection is impossible, but uh, in pursuit of perfection, stay relentless, always pursue, always improve and uh, making continual progress. Sean, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and to learn more about your amazing background and some some great insights and inspiration and even uh, information to um, help our listeners plug into their current roles or future uh, challenges. So we appreciate the time. Uh, We know you're quite busy with the many roles at Philips and we look forward to seeing all the wonderful progress and, of course, seeing how this purpose and this mission is fulfilled uh, in the next few years. So thank you very much. We appreciate it. And we hope to cross paths again soon. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this session of the Design Leadership Podcast. I do hope that you gained some valuable insights and inspiration to help further you along in your path in design leadership. If you would like to learn more on how myself and my colleagues have helped to empower design leaders for the past 22 years, through consulting, coaching, educating, and uniting design leaders across the globe, please check out our suite of services found online at empowering.design. I wish you the best of success in your design leadership journey and pursuit of design excellence. Be well and stay safe.